Let's open in prayer to our King. God, we are desperate for you to open our eyes and soften our hearts. Help us to see Jesus as he is, to exalt him highly alongside of you, the King of all kings, the creator of the universe, the commander of spiritual armies, the judge of the world. God, what an amazing thought that that king would love us and be present with us, God. Thank you that in Christ we can be known by you. Help us experience that intimacy now. Amen. When I was a little kid, I really loved watching magicians on TV. Not those kind of magicians, those clown-like guys that you see at a carnival or at a kid's birthday party. Those card tricks and interlocking ring tricks, those are lame. I like a guy like David Copperfield. That guy made jet airplanes disappear. He could cut people in half and put them back together, make them levitate, float in air right on stage. One time, right on Liberty Island, he put a live audience there and made the Statue of Liberty disappear right in front of him. That is so cool, though my wife doesn't think so. I think those magicians are awesome. David Copperfield could fill out entire auditoriums with people excited to see his magic shows. He would captivate millions on live TV with his masterful illusions. And by the end of his shows, people were just in awe, marveling at how in the world he did it. He, how could he make the Statue of Liberty just disappear? How could he cut a person in half without killing him? But the trick was done so well, nobody could figure it out. And we know that it wasn't really magic. That's why we call these people illusionists. They somehow trick our eyes and our minds into thinking something incredible happened when it didn't really. And because we know it's not real, we're entertained by it. We laugh and and pat each other on the back and marvel at how it's done and joke about it. But what if it really was real? What if you really could cut people in half without hurting them or make enormous things disappear? What would our reaction be then? This morning we're going to consider, from the pers- consider that question from the perspective of these large crowds that are following Jesus as they marvel at these incredible, impossible things that he is doing right before their eyes. So our text for today is Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28, and we're going to cross over into chapter 9, all the way to verse 8. Matthew 8, 28 to 9, 8. And here we will see that Jesus is no entertaining magician, but the king of the universe Matthew 8:28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, one of the main themes that Matthew is trying to get into our minds is that the king of the Jews, the king of the world, really, has finally arrived. In the last few weeks, we've been seeing how his authority has been displayed to us, his authority as king. So in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew presented him as the lawgiver. He has the right to make the law and give the law from on top of the mountain. And after that sermon, now he comes down from the mountain and Matthew presents nine miracles over the course of a couple more chapters. Nine miracles in three sets of three, separated by a short call to discipleship. After three, here's what I think you should be doing. Three more, now follow me again. So he came down from the mountain in chapter 8 and put his authority on display, put it to work on behalf of the lowly, showing his power over sickness. And then there was that call to discipleship that we heard about last week, where he says, this life of discipleship isn't all roses and healing and happiness. It's difficult. It's a painful journey. It's going to cost you a lot in your life. And now he's giving more meaning behind that with three more miracles. This is what I mean by the difficulty of this life of discipleship. Today we're going to cover two of these episodes because last week Kevin covered one of them, the calming of the storm on the sea, where Jesus displayed that he is also the creator, the one who commands creation. The disciples in the boat saw this on display as he came down from the mountain after giving the law, and then commanding creation with that same authority. And today, we'll take a look in two parts how Jesus is also the commander of the spiritual armies and judge of the hearts of humanity. Those two things are our outline that will point us to the main idea. In each of these three displays in chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, the response of the audience reveals to us how we should respond to Jesus when we see his authority on display. In each case, the people are left in fear, telling us that when we see Jesus' authority, 
it should strike fear into our hearts as well. When Jesus displays his power, our hearts should be full of fear as well. So we'll take a look at these two sections on Jesus' authority and ask why, why they should make us tremble as well. So let's go back to chapter 8, verse 28, and see him begin to display his powerful authority. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. So we come off of the scene. We need to remember the scene of the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's very important to have that feeling with us. The disciples just were fearing for their lives with the waves tossing them side to side. They thought they were going to die. And then Jesus stands up and calms the sea. And they were struck with even more fear. They marveled, who is this guy? Only God has that type of authority to calm seas. And now we're stuck in a boat with him. We are in trouble. But they survived. They survived the trip across the sea, still trembling, wondering who this guy is. And they finally reached the other side. They were on the north side, and they traveled down to about the southeast side to a region called Gadara. This is no longer Jewish country, but Gentile territory. And here they encounter two demon-possessed men. Demons, evil spirits, have so powerfully overtaken these guys that they are dangerous. They block the way between the city there and the seashore. People are afraid to go near them. They fear for their own lives. But even though other people are afraid of them, notice what happens in the next verses. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. So the demons, as fearful as they are, see something even more fearful than them in Jesus. Jesus coming up out of the boat onto the shore, and they are trembling in their Spiritual boots, if they wear boots, I guess. They refer to Jesus as the Son of God, recognizing his divine authority to command spirits. God is the one who created them with his word, and now he too can command them with his own word. The demons see this authority in Jesus, and they tremble. I'm not going to claim to know everything about demon possession. There's a lot of weird stuff happening in here with pigs and and Gentiles and evil spirits living in animals. It's just weird stuff. But I'm full of questions. Is demon possession a common experience at the time? But the Bible doesn't really emphasize that much, except for here in the Gospels a bit. Or is this something we should expect to deal with today? I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's easy to get lost in those details and forget to step back and see the main idea. Matthew's trying to make a point here that has nothing to do with demon possession and starting an exorcism ministry here at Redemption. But he wants us to marvel at the authority of Jesus. So let's look back at verse 32 and see how incredibly powerful Jesus is. And he said to them, go. One word, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled 
And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So remember a couple weeks ago when the centurion came to Jesus at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8. The centurion comes and he tells this story. He pleads with Jesus to heal his servant. And he tells him this story about being a man in authority who says, go, and immediately his soldiers or his servants do what he tells them. And the point of that story was to be able to display his faith that Jesus has the exact same kind of authority, but over everything. Jesus says to those who are sick, be healed, and immediately they're healed. He says to the raging sea, be still, and immediately it's calm as glass. And now he says one word to the demons, go, and immediately they flee. This is incredible power and authority on display, an authority that only God himself has. So the disciples recognize that and say, what is going on here? Who is this man? But not only are the disciples starting to realize this, but Gentiles see this as well. The herdsmen lost their pigs and they go running into the city telling everybody, guys, this guy just killed all my herd. All my livelihood is gone. Come out and see it. Help me out. And so the city gets their torches and pitchforks and they're coming out. We're going to go see this guy. What's going on here? And as soon as they see him, they quickly retreat. They recognize something's going on here that they don't want to mess with. They beg Jesus to get out of their region. That makes me wonder, why in the world wouldn't they be happy? Why wouldn't they be excited? Like, who is this newcomer? He just healed our two friends who have been a pain in our rear for a long time. He finally made the path to the sea safe to travel again. I can go out on my trolling boat now and go fishing again. Or in this rural sea life that they lived... Why aren't they just happy to finally have something entertaining to laugh and smile about? Instead, they were desperate for him to go away. Why? Because they too realized that they were in the presence of God's authority. If this man can command the seas and command demons, he can command the weather and spirits to do anything to disrupt my life. Their lives are in danger. With one word, he can collapse everything important to them, like he did to those herdsmen who lost all their pigs. If this man can see spirits inside of these men, what does he see in me? I don't want him spending any time around me anymore. So instead of falling on their knees in repentance, they say, get away from us. I think we miss the emphasis of Jesus' power on display when we read these healings and these exorcisms. We tend to think this is just kind of interesting entertainment for us, or we're comforted that, wow, Jesus is helping people. And we don't see that people are afraid of him. We're missing something vital in this story if we don't walk away from reading it and hearing it with that same heart of fear. This display of power and authority should strike fear into our own hearts because with one single word, Jesus can look at any one of us and say, go, follow me, leave everything. Jesus has the 
power and authority as creator. He has the authority of a spiritual commander. And now we can see that the authority drive down to the deepest parts of our hearts where he can see everything that's hidden there. So turn to chapter 9 and verse 1 and see his authority as the judge of men. Getting back into the boat, he crossed over and came into his own city. Just briefly, Jesus listened to the Gadarenes. He left as they requested, and he gets back into the boat to go back to the north side. When it says to his own city, it's not referring to Nazareth anymore. If you paid attention back in chapter 4, it said he moved to Capernaum where on the north side of the sea is where the Sermon on the Mount was and a bunch of his healings are. So he returns to Capernaum on the north side of the sea. And then back in verse 2, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, now that he's back in Jewish country, where he's already got quite a reputation as a healer, the people, there's some people there who found out he's back in town. They heard a whisper or something. Jesus is back. So they think this is their great opportunity to get healing for their friend. They get their friend on the bed and carry him. Jesus, Jesus, confident that he can heal their friend who is stuck on a bed and can't walk. So interestingly, they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus has compassion on him. And Jesus is really moved by the faith of this paralytic man's friend. So he's like, oh, I'm so thankful you brought him to me. I'm marveling at your faith. Of course, I will forgive your sins. What? Forgive his sins? That's not what they asked for. They asked for him to heal his legs so he can walk again. Is Jesus confused? What is this all about? Well, there's two things to point out about this response that make it not so strange. First, it was commonly thought of in that time that physical dysfunction was very closely correlated, if not caused, by spiritual dysfunction. Like in the story of Job, all of his friends accusing him, you must be sinning, that's why all this bad stuff is happening to you. So that's what people thought. Sometimes it might have been true, Oftentimes it was not, and Jesus corrected that even in John chapter 9. So it wouldn't have been as confusing to them in that time. They would have assumed, oh, Jesus is healing his sins, forgiving his sins, so the next step will likely be he's going to be healed of his physical ailment. But more importantly, related to the main point of this text, this isn't about healing someone's broken legs but primarily about displaying Jesus' authority, revealing more of who he is, his divine nature. Jesus is using this opportunity to display himself as so much more than a generous healer, but the king who has authority to judge. So let's move back to verse 3 and see how he judges. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home, 
And he rose and went home. Now the scribes are really smart guys. They know their Bibles really well. Their job is to sit at a desk and write the Bible over and over and over and over. They've got it memorized. They know that only God has the authority to forgive sins. So it's not necessarily wrong for them to suggest blasphemy might be occurring here. Blasphemy is not simply using God's name as a curse word or using it lightly, but claiming identity, representation of God and acting not in accordance with his character. To claim what only he can do as your own. So if Jesus were a mere man, like the rest of us, of course this would be blasphemy. But as the disciples saw in the boat, Jesus is no ordinary man. And he proves it now by healing the paralytic. Anyone, he says, can turn to his neighbor and say, your sins are forgiven, and it will have no consequence in anyone's life. That's no proof that anything happened. So that's why he asks this question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? If he says, rise and walk, oh, I can forgive sins, rise and walk, and nothing happens, he just looks like a fool who's claiming to be God. And everyone can stone him right there. But to prove that he's not pretending, he tells the man, get up. A man whose legs are obviously broken. This isn't some pretend healing that, oh, I healed you of your, your cough or your cold. Then people are like, well, maybe he was already getting better. No, this was obvious. This man has power. He says, rise and walk. And a man whose legs are withered suddenly strengthen and he walks home. And the crowds know exactly what's going on. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The response from the Jewish crowds is the same as the response from the Gentile crowds. And from the disciples in the boat, fear, dread. Yes, it says they glorified God, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were happy about it. To glorify God, glory means heaviness, seriousness, intense focus. They didn't break into a song and dance party and start singing happy music combined with the word fear here. The scene paints a picture more of people dropping to their faces in fear of dread, of punishment, of judgment coming their way. Confessing their sins because suddenly God has arrived, made his presence known, and they are doomed to judgment. And how do they know? How do we know that? Why do they feel that way about Jesus? Because back in verse 4, it says Jesus can see their thoughts. The scribes didn't loudly, audibly accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They were whispering it to themselves or internally. They were wondering, what is this guy doing? Who is this? I'm sure many other people there were thinking, wait, what's going on here? And then Jesus addresses all this internal confusion by speaking to their thoughts and proving his authority to forgive sins Now he has revealed who he is as the judge, the judge of every single person's heart in his audience. That is a cause for fear, my friends. 
When we hear this story, we too ought to drop to our knees and say, I am in trouble when we recognize his power to see right into my heart. He can see every secret lie we've told. He can see every lustful thought that's passed through our hearts. The doubt of his goodness and his power in our lives. This is the thought that broke me and wrestled. I wrestled with all week long. And the thought I want to finish with today, why don't we fear Jesus like these people did? When David Copperfield performs his magic tricks, people cheer and they laugh and they smile and then they go about their day. But when Jesus performs a miracle, people beg him to leave. They fear for their lives. Jesus is no ordinary wise man or generous miracle worker. He's the king. He's creator of everything. The commander of spiritual armies and the judge of every one of our hearts. So why don't we, why don't we fear Jesus? One possibility that you might be thinking is, well, he's forgiven us. He, he's a forgiving guy. So we're not, we don't need to fear punishment anymore. There's not that punishment looming, looming over our heads. Perfect love casts out all fear, right? We're okay. We can relax. Well, that might be true of that dreadful fear of punishment. But we're still commanded to respect him. He's the creator. He could speak us out of existence at any moment. If we go astray, he could crack the whip to bring us back in at any time. He is powerful and mighty. We should be in awe of him, have reverent fear of him. So I think the reason that if we're honest, the reason why we don't fear him as we ought is because we don't really see him as he is. We don't see Jesus as worthy of that kind of fear and respect. We don't think of him as highly as we should. We don't grasp the power of his authority. We don't really see him as perfect judge, powerful creator, and spiritual commander. So we try to make it a little more comfortable for our lives by maybe we bring him down so he's a spiritual buddy of ours. You know, he kind of looks a lot like me. He encourages me in the things I like, and he doesn't talk about the things that we don't like. He's just like me, so I don't need to be afraid of him. Or we keep him at a distance. He's up there on the mountain or over there across the sea. Or he's a character in a book that when I get really uncomfortable, I can just close it and move on with my life. He's so much more than that, friends. He's powerful and mighty. He's glorious and beautiful. He deserves all of our affection and all of our obedience. He commands the world to exist by the power of a word. He tells the sun to rise and to set, and it doesn't. He tells the spring flowers to bloom, and they do. He commands the seas to be still, and they do. He commands demons to flee, and immediately they go. And he tells every one of us, repent. And we say, hmm, that's an interesting com comment there, Jesus. Uh, kind of a neat idea. Maybe I'll do a word study on repentance and see if that's something I should do. So let me help you with your word study a little bit. Today's text shows us that repentance means 
absolute, complete surrender to Jesus. Giving up your life to him and letting him run it as he sees fit. Recognizing that he is the king and he has authority to ruin me or to heal me. To comfort me or to judge me. Martin Luther wrote in his first of his 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ told us to repent, he willed that the the life of a believer, the entire life of a believer, be one of repentance. Being a Christian isn't just agreeing to a set of theological principles or saying, oh yeah, I'll take those benefits and joining up with the club. It's living in surrender to Jesus so that whenever anything about us is exposed that's not in line with his holy, beautiful, powerful character, we say, take it from me now, I don't want it. When you're in my presence, I am fearful to hold on to it. Being under the authority of Jesus is both the most threatening and safest place we could be. Because he's always searching out and pointing out the areas in our lives that we're still in rebellion to his authority. But as he does, he brings us the world's greatest joys and pleasures. His love both attracts us and repels us. We're drawn to this power for healing, but we're also should be fearful that that power can command us to do whatever he wants and bring a lot of discomfort in our lives. Jonathan Lehman wrote in a book about God's love that we both love and despise his love. He says, we love the embrace of it as it flies out towards us but we despise its demands as it calls us back into loving him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We despise the suggestion that his love will cause him to judge us. Similarly, God's gospel is something that we love and despise. We love the announcement of forgiveness and love at no merit of our own. And we despise the call to repent, to forsake everything and follow Jesus We despise the exclusiveness of it, that he deserves all of our allegiance, nobody else. Even the church, God's people gathered, is something we love and despise. We love the idea of warm fellowship as it welcomes us in and embraces us. And we despise this fellowship's requirements that we abandon the familiar blandishments of family and friends and submit ourselves to the church's oversight and discipline. This is the message that Matthew wants us to know by telling us of these powerful tales of Jesus' ministry. The king is here, he says. Rejoice, the king is here, and be afraid. He will finally make everything right. He's going to bring perfect justice, but that's not good news for us. Justice means we are all in trouble. And our only hope is to drop to our knees and say, forgive me, I am nothing. I'm sorry for being in rebellion. Have mercy on me. I surrender it all to you. And because he is merciful, he doesn't just welcome us in because he's merciful, but because he's merciful, he went to the cross to die for our rebellion. He died as one of us, a rebel to the kingdom, 
so that he could set us free to be joyful citizens in heaven. So we shouldn't just hear this news and go about our lives then as we just saw some cool magician. But we reveal our submission to Christ in all areas of our lives. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that those who are led by the Spirit will submit to one another in the church and in our homes and in our workplaces. He says in Romans 13, we will submit to the government because through all of these things, we are showing that it is worthy. He is worthy to surrender. We submit to the authority of the church by becoming members, surrendering to Jesus' authority who has given that to the church, who then helps us all stay faithful citizens of the kingdom, helps hold us accountable to being in allegiance to our king. And then strangely, when we do so, we get the world's greatest joys and greatest pleasures because he is with us. He will satisfy all of our greatest desires when we submit to his oversight. So friends, all of us, every single one of us here today is called to surrender more to Jesus. No matter where you are in your walk of faith, you must surrender more to Christ. For some, that means for the first time ever, getting on your knees and calling out to him and say, I am done. Instead of telling him to depart from me or running away from here, never to return to hear Jesus speak to you, you say, have it. Sign the blank page of your life over to him and say, you are the commander of my destiny. For others, it means showing more surrender to Christ in your home or in your workplace. For all of us here who came to church to hear the word of God proclaimed, we should all consider how we should give our lives more to his kingdom by joining in the body, by joining in membership, by giving our gifts of service to the body, to love one another, loosening our grip on our treasures, to share with one another, confessing our sins to one another. Because as Paul says, all who are in Christ... All who are guided by his spirit will surrender in many areas in their lives, day after day after day, as he reveals to us our sin. So let's go to him now in prayer, in surrender. Prayer is an act of submission to say, you have me. Guide me on my next steps. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, we bow our heads before you because we are not worthy to look up to you. We close our eyes out of fear because if we gaze upon your glory and our sin, we will be undone. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. But because of Christ, you have touched our souls and made us clean that we can be welcomed in no longer rebels. Help us, God, know the next step. Reveal to us where our lives are still in rebellion to you. And may it be a joy to let it go, not to tell you to go away, but to let our sin go away that we may draw close to you. Comfort us, God, as we surrender, as we submit and repent. Help us, God, to feel the joy of entering into your presence that we may no longer Fear. 
but feel loved as beloved sons and daughters of the King. Amen.